Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. But then there are some things that I go, really? Really? Do you really need to know all that? <laughs> you know, and we, we probably have a love-hate relationship with the information age. There was a, um, an article in Wired magazine a couple of years back by Professor, Professor Julian Birkinshaw from the London Business School. And Wired is a, a you know a, an online magazine. It's they often invite professors to write into their issues and articles. It's kind of on the same. I don't know. Somebody's going to debate me with this. You know, probably about the same kind of level as Time magazine. You know, widely read. And he said that there's four problems with the information age. So people have been talking about this for a while now, even before you know the ramp up of having to QR code everything and scan in for everything, you know. People have been talking about the problems. Although there's good things, there's also an evil side or a dark side to the information age. And he said, number one is paralysis through analysis. You know, there's so much data and there's so much information out there that we almost like delay our decision-making or we can't move forward on, on, you know, on creative ideas or innovative ideas. Who's, I don't know, maybe you've experienced that, that whole paralysis, will somebody just make a decision? You know, where once upon a time you had no clue, you just make a decision and go forward, you know, and sometimes I think we feel like, oh, wouldn't it be nice, you know? So that whole idea of paralysis through analysis. The other thing he said that was a problem with the information age is easy access to data can make us intellectually lazy. Oh, I'll just Google it. You know, just because you know it, just because you've found it, doesn't mean that you've thought about it. And so what happens, especially for our young people that have grown up in this, you know, digital natives that have grown up in this age, is they're so used to just having a massive smorgasbord of information available to them that they become so used to that that they sometimes they don't process it or they don't think about it or they don't maybe think deeply about it and think, well, how does this line up with my personal values? And which leads to the, no- the next one is impulsivity. And I don't know about you, but I'm constantly, oh, let grab my phone. Oh, let me just find out. You know, how do you pronounce that word? Or how do you say, you know, or what is the, I don't know, whatever the thing it might be. You know, you, you're cooking, you've re- you know, got a recipe and you're like, oh, what's that ingredient? You know, quickly Google it just in case there's a, you know, something else you know about that or you need to know about that. So much at our, at our fingertips. But what that means is that we can just impulsively know things and not necessarily think about things. And the other thing that Professor Birkinshaw said was that a little learning is dangerous, and we know this, don't we? Just because you know something, or just because you've got information available to you, doesn't mean that you have a circumspect understanding of it. And in in the scripture, the Hebrew word for understanding is to view circumspectly. You know, not just be a narrow tunnel vision, not just be a, like a little 45 or 90 degree angle vision, not, but to take the blinkers off and to be able to consider circumspectly and have a 360 degree view. A little learning is dangerous. And so what this has led to, the information age, and we're all living in this right now, is the knowledge wars. And people have written books about the knowledge wars. People start to say, well, this is the the right thing and this is the right thing and everybody can have a say because there's public forums where you can just blurt out your opinion or blurt out information. And I'm I'm all for learning and education. Knowledge is not necessarily always a bad thing, but it's not always a good thing either. 
And I don't know about you, but this is this idea of debate fatigue is just something that I made up recently because I was in a classroom working with a group of people. And what we like to do as educators is we like to like, I call it kick an ant's nest. You know, you know that in Australia we have like termite mounds and if you kick them, the termites go everywhere. It's not a nice thing to do. You shouldn't because, you know, you'll probably get hurt. Or, you know, I grew up in North Queensland, so we used to have green ant nests. And as kids, you'd go over and just mess with them a little bit and then run away, you know, and they would scramble everywhere. And sometimes I talk about that, you know, in classrooms, I'm like, let's just kick an ant's nest. It's like we come along as educators and go, here's an issue. What do you think? And somebody go, oh, I think this. And then the other people will be like, I'm not sure because what about this? And I'm like, hmm. And, you know, we love that. We love that as educators when people start to think, when people start to consider other people's sides. But of recent times, I've noticed if I kick an ant's nest, that um, I get a little bit of hesitancy. Really? Can't we just agree on something? Do we have to have another debate? You know, so there's a little bit of debate fatigue out there at the moment. Knowledge wars is, is... is, you know, it leads to division and leads to divisiveness, but we know that knowledge comes from need. Knowledge is, is just knowledge. Knowledge isn't necessarily the foundation of things. Knowledge actually comes from somewhere. Knowledge is ju- usually generated because there is a need. And I have a little flow chart here to show how we work at a human level when it comes to knowledge. So usually there's a need. Something needs to be done. Now, I have a classic example my daughters are nearly 15 and 17, 15 and nearly 17, and they have grown up in a household where they have watched their parents cook most meals every day for the last 17 years, just about. And um, in the last two weeks, they've got this new babysitting job that involves looking after five children and cooking them the family meal. Oh my, the learning curve of all the things that I taught them. Now it's getting real, you know, and, that how, and I'm getting all these messages. So how, well, actually, Daniel got the message, 450 grams of rice, how much water? You know, like that kind of learning, that kind of, because why? Because all of a sudden there is a need. And the, the interesting thing about the, the jump from having a need, needing to know something and jumping to finding out the answer or finding out the solution is a belief that it's possible. So once upon a time, you know, there was, there was a belief that it was possible to discover microorganisms like bacteria and viruses. And scientists put their reputations on the line. As, as if you read the history, you know, they were thought to be, you know, heretics and things like that, saying that there are microorganisms smaller than the human eye can see. Because they had a belief. There was a need in society. They had a belief. And then they made a discovery. They generated knowledge around it. And usually what happens then when we generate knowledge around a certain thing is that we develop behaviours and language. You know, my girls can tell you now about how to cook with gas, literally, and what to do when the gas runs out in the middle of the cooking and you have to go downstairs and swap the gas bottles over. You know, like all these things that you... Okay, so now there's behaviours and there's language to go with it. And as societies in every culture, what we do is we then take that knowledge and those, those knowledge systems and we turn them into systems of operation. You know, so we have a medical system. And there's many, to all the medical professionals out there, you'll be like, Alison, there's more than one medical system. And that's right. We develop ways and systems of working 
and systems of thought, education systems, political systems. And we see differences in political systems between nations and different countries, different parts of the world. Business systems. You know, we develop systems. And what those systems are meant to do is serve the need, right? Except sometimes they don't. And sometimes we end up serving the system. And so there's constant, and that's what creates the tension, So there's constant argy-bargy between, well, somebody says, well, this is a need. And somebody goes, really? Is it a need or is it just a want? You know, and so we start debating and that debate needs to happen in society. That debate needs to happen, but it's all horizontal. It's all just between people. It's a human endeavour of gaining knowledge and trying to do the right thing by each other. And sometimes that can be perverted. Sometimes people have, um, you know, a perverse or adverse agendas and they're not trying to do the right thing by everybody. They're trying to do the right thing by themselves. And so there's this debate between knowledge. So knowledge is both good and bad. And we see from the scripture that knowledge can be both good and bad as well. Back in the Old Testament, one of the prophets, Hosea, he said, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. And so by no means am I saying today that we shouldn't have knowledge. Knowledge is incredibly important. As a matter of fact, there is a really strong correlation between the health and the prosperity of a nation and the knowledge and the education of its women. Because women are often a a health indicator because they're so incredibly vital to the raising of the next generation and the support of the education of both boys and girls. And so, so... my people perish for a lack of knowledge. We don't just want to go, okay, that's it. I'm out. I don't want to know anything else. <laughs> that's not the answer because then we perish for ignorance and then we make decisions based that are not well-founded. But at the same time, one of the writers of the New Testament, Paul, when he wrote to the, to the Corinthian church, he said, you know what? You have destroyed weak people because of your knowledge. You've used what you know and you've hurt people who are vulnerable And you've taken advantage of them. And so we know that knowledge is both good and bad. And if you're a scholar of the Bible here today, or maybe you've never opened the Bible in your life, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, write the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, you'll discover that knowledge is labeled as both good and evil. It is both good and bad. And so there's a need for discernment here. So there is no end to debate. And if there was a tug of war, knowledge would be the little rope in the middle. There's always going to be that. There's always going to be debate about what's best for people, what's best for society, what's best for... But it's just here, guys. It's a horizontal debate between humans. So there's no end to it. But the trouble with it (laughs) is that people take sides. And then people think when there's sides that one side is better because... I want you to take my side and I want everyone to think that I'm right. So what does that mean about the other side? That they're wrong. (laughs) And now not all sides are equal and I'm not about to say that they are. But then if we're Christians, we complicate it, don't we? Because then we're like, God, I want you to take my side. And And we invite God into this horizontal debate. And I am fully, fully, I fully believe that we should invite God into every area of our lives every part of our lives and every part of our thinking and every part of our questioning and every part of our search for meaning. I absolutely do. But knowledge can divide. And if we only stay on the level of knowledge, 
we're never going to find peace. And the reason is, is that the debate that happens at this horizontal level is not the way that Jesus came. When Jesus came to the earth, he's, he was for everybody. He was for the religious people. He spoke with them. He was Sometimes he chastised them and brought correction to them. He was for the poor. He was for every socioeconomic class. He was for both men and women. He was for every ethnicity. He was for everybody. Now, I'm not saying he supported everything they did. I'm not saying he, but he definitely did not take sides. And what we find with Jesus is when Jesus comes, instead of arguing over issues and factions and sides and, and debating and arguing over things, Jesus didn't come to do that. See, there's a whole other agenda that Jesus has, and that is to bring heaven to earth. To have a vertical relationship, the relationship between us and God is not one of what's right and what's wrong and what camp should I be in and should I be left or should I be right or should I be, you know, what's, you know who's pro or against and all of those sort of things. The, the relationship that we have with God is a vertical one. And we see this so many times repeated across the scripture in so many different instances, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We're going to have a look at two examples today where Jesus comes, you know, where everyone's like, so which side are you on? What's the, what's the situation? And, and Jesus comes and he's just like, actually, this is about a, a different agenda. This is about God's kingdom coming. God's will be done. So let's have a look in Joshua, the story of Joshua. Joshua, at the time of this story here in, in chapter one, uh, was a young leader uh, he, he was a young leader and he'd just taken over the leadership of Israel uh, from it, Moses. And Moses was a really respected leader. He'd taken Israel out of Egypt into, um, into the wilderness and he'd been their leader there for 40 years. And he's just taking on a new, you know, Moses comes to the end of his life. And so Joshua is taking on this, a new role for him to lead Israel then into Canaan. And Canaan was the land that they had originally come out of, that the family of the Israelites, the original family that was now a nation of, of Israel, had come out of for some 400 years earlier. And Joshua has the job now of leading them back into Canaan. And of course, Canaan is occupied. In that time, in those hundreds of years that they had been in slavery in Egypt, Canaan has become occupied by other nations and so they have a massive job ahead of them to move a nation into land that's somebody else's nation you know these guys are refugees they, they weren't they didn't belong in Egypt and they're on their way back to the land that they came from which is now occupied by other people so Joshua has quite a a, a job ahead of him and what we see here is that is that in about six instances, right between when Moses handed the leadership over to him and in the first, um, you know, sort of months of Joshua's leadership, there's six instances in the scripture where Joshua is told, I want you to be strong and very courageous. I want you to be strong and very courageous. And here's one, don't be afraid, don't be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So he had a massive job ahead of him. And I think we can all identify with that. You know, what is the massive job ahead of you at the moment? What is the battle that you're fighting in your life? What is the struggle that, that's going on with you at the moment? And if we just have a look here at Joshua's life, one afternoon, he's afternoon, early evening, I'm imagining that it is. You know, it, in Joshua chapter 5, Joshua is about to take his army 
to take the first city in the land of Canaan, which was Jericho. And he's outside the camp. Joshua goes for a walk. He, he leaves the noise of the camp behind and he goes for a walk. And he's, as he's out there alone, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was praying. Maybe he was going over the battle plans in his head. But he's about to go and take, lead his first battle. And he's out there and he's alone. And this man appears to him. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Now, some scholars think that this might have been Jesus himself. Other people think it might have been an angel. But whether it was Jesus or an angel, Joshua was like, hang on a minute, who are you? (laughs) As most of us probably would have been. And so Joshua went up to him and asked, so are you for us or are you for our enemies? Whose side are you on? Whose side are you on? And then his response is so profound. The man says, neither. Neither. And we're like, kind of like, we come from our human perspective and we're like, what? I thought he should have been on Joshua's side. And, but don't forget that Joshua was asking a question. Are you for us or are you for them? Are you on our side or are you on their side? He was asking a horizontal question. And, this, and Jesus, the angel, comes in and says, Neither, but as a captain of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And he talks right in that moment and he says, This isn't about nation against nation. This is about what the will of God is. And in that moment, heaven comes to earth. And, the, and Joshua has this moment of realization, this isn't about people against people. This is about what is the will of God in this situation. And in that moment, the, the heaven came to earth. And so Joshua falls face down. He realizes what's going on and he's, he has this moment of face down. Now, don't forget, this is the guy that was told six times, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. But then he encounters the Lord and he falls face down to the ground in reverence and asks him, what message do you have for your servant? See, when heaven comes to earth, we start to get a higher perspective. We start to realize that there's more to this than just two nations. There's more to this than just two sides. The commander of the Lord's army replied, take your sandals off. And for an ancient Hebrew man, that was a sign of worship. You know, when the priests brought their offerings in acts of worship, they would, they would be barefoot. And so Joshua has fallen face to the ground and then he takes his shoes off in an act of worship, vulnerable. He's a man of war. He's planning a strategic battle and he takes his shoes off and he bows his knee and he puts his face to the ground and he says, God, what is your perspective? What is the message that you have for me? God, what is it that you want? Let me get away from the battle. Let me get away from the noise. Let me get away from the camp, the men preparing for war tomorrow, the sounds of, you know, spears and, 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 weapons being beaten over the fire, ready for battle tomorrow. Let me get away from all the noise and leave the noise and, and get outside the camp. And then let me help, help me God to look up 
He says, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And it was a holy moment where Joshua, preparing for battle, preparing for war, be strong, very courageous, was on his knees, on his face, with his feet off, with his shoes off, saying, God, what is the message that you have for me? And the amazing thing that we learn about this story is that sometimes the most courageous thing you can do is not to ask God to enact the solution that you've come up with, but to say, God, what is your message? God, what is your will in this situation? God, what is your will? And let heaven come to earth. See, it's not about sides. Basically, what the, what the angel said to Joshua, if we can just go to the next slide, is that it's not about sides. Worship me. It's not about sides. Worship the Lord. Look up. Bow your knees and look up. And there's this amazing paradox here in this story, this amazing kind of like it looks like opposites, you know. Be strong and very courageous. Get on your knees. <laughs> you know, and, but that, the most courageous thing he could do was to get on his knees and say, God, what is your will for this situation? And maybe that's the, the most courageous thing you can do in your situation at the moment. The battle that you're facing, the, the opinion and the argument and the, the situation, perhaps at work or perhaps in your family, perhaps in your finances, whatever area it might be that is giving you the most tension at the moment. Sometimes the most courageous thing we can say is, God, let your will be done. God, let your will be done. Be done. God, what is the message that you have for us? So Joshua left the noise of the camp and there he worshipped the Lord and he gained perspective. He quietened his soul and he realized this wasn't just about one nation coming in to take the space of another nation. This was a heavenly agenda. This was something God was doing. And his, his response was, God, so what, what do you want me to say and what do you want me to know? See, when heaven comes to earth, people take up positions of courage and of worship. And last week, our lead pastor, Jonathan, talked about how a Christ-like courage always comes out of a place of worship. And if you didn't hear last week's message, I strongly recommend that you listen to the podcast. It was a great message about how there is no, there's always a plan. There's always a plan C. You know, we think it's got to be this or it's got to be that. It's going to be. But you know what? When Jesus stretched his arms wide and died for the world, he didn't die for some. He died for everybody. Why? Because he didn't enter into the debate. He didn't enter into the division. Jesus never bought in to the division. He came to bring heaven to earth. And, you know, this whole idea of bringing heaven to earth, of Joshua bowing himself in worship in an act of courage, is exactly what Jesus did in his most dire moment, the, the night before he died. Jesus left, the, similar to Joshua, left the camp. Jesus left the city. He left Jerusalem. He went outside to a garden called Gethsemane. And he knew, he knew that he was about to be betrayed and he was about to fight the biggest battle of his life for the souls of men and women against evil. He knew it. 
He knew what he was about to do and he understood the gravity of it. And so he left. He had had dinner that night with his disciples and he left them behind. He took a few of them with him, but left the dinner behind and left the city behind and he came outside. And we find Jesus in prayer on his knees about to do the most courageous act that mankind has ever witnessed to take the weight of the sin of the world upon his shoulders and to be the ultimate sacrifice for all of us, both for everybody gone past and everybody into the future. And we find, what is Jesus doing? We find him on his knees in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little farther, Jesus, he fell on his face and prayed. There it is again, a posture of worship, a posture of prayer, saying, My Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. (laughs) And maybe there's a situation in your life at the moment and you're like, God, if you could get me out of this, you know, beam me up. (laughs) God, if you could just fix this. God, if you could just make this go away. You are in good company because that is exactly how Jesus felt the night before he died. Here he is in courageous prayer saying, God, if it's possible, take it away. But nevertheless, not my will, not my human will, but God, your divine will, let that be done. This is exactly the same prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray just a few moments earlier, moments probably longer, a little while earlier. His disciples came to him one day and they asked him, they said, Rabbi, you teach us how to pray. I don't know why. Maybe they saw that the prayers of Jesus were more effective than theirs or maybe they had been arguing over what was the right way to pray. There's a high chance. They argued over a lot of things, the disciples. Honestly, you should read the scripture. They wanted to know who Jesus' favourite was all the time. It's like having kids. Argy-bargy. Who's the favourite? Who's the best? Who's right? Whose side are you on, Jesus? So they came to him one day and they said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he did. He taught them how to pray a prayer of asking for the will of the Father to come a prayer of vertical relationship with the God of heaven and earth rather than a prayer of, God, I've come up with a horizontal solution. I need you to enact it for me. (laughs) So often we come up with ideas and we pray things like, okay, God, I've got this idea. I need you to do it. (laughs) God, I want you to take my side. Until we realize that when Jesus stretched his arms wide on the cross, he was encompassing everybody. His embrace was so wide. The cross is not that small. It was huge. The work of the cross was that big and that complete. And this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That word hallowed there means, God, I worship you. I adore you. You are holy. You are the God of heaven and earth, and I am a mere mortal. So the first thing Jesus taught his disciples to do was to worship. 
and to get things in perspective. And we don't know what to pray and we don't know what to do. This is a great example. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. And then he says it on earth, amongst the mass, amongst it all. God between us and within us. God, in every situation, as far and as wide as humanity stretches with all our differences and all our divisions and all our differences of opinion and all our different ways of thinking, God, let heaven, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus does a beautiful thing and he goes straight on and he addresses the immediate need that people are experiencing. He says, God, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for today. Give us the sustenance and the strength that we need to face today. God, give us the courage. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins And we forgive those who sinned against us. God, we forgive those who sinned against us, those we disagree with, those who offend us. God, those who we just just don't see eye to eye. As a matter of fact, it feels like they're constantly making a decision to live dysfunctionally, in my opinion. God, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. And lead us, not into temptation, or another version of the Bible says, lead us not into a time of trial, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and yours is the power, and yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. And you know that little Hebrew word at the end there, amen, amen? It's not a gendered word. It's a Hebrew word that means, and so let it be. Let it be. It's a statement of agreement. Like Joshua on his knees before the captain of the Lord of hosts. What is the message you have for me? And my question to us today, my question to you is, what is the battle that you're fighting? What is the situation that you're fighting? What is the, the throng of the crowd that you have to wade into? What is the thick tension that is your everyday that you have to wade into because we all have it. Would you pray a courageous prayer that says, Father, I want to worship you first. Let your kingdom come into this situation. God, I pray for your will to be done in this situation.
let's pray together. In this moment of quiet, this moment of worship, God, we still our hearts before you. God, we still our minds before you. God, we take a moment to turn down the noise. In your family, let the will of God be done. God, we pray in our workplaces, let the will of God be done. God, in our nation, let the will of God be done. Just take a moment. Just whisper out to you, God, in this situation, let your will be done. Father, we worship you. Maybe you've never prayed that prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. But maybe you want to. Maybe you want to pray that prayer for the first time and invite Jesus to come into your life. Or maybe you need to pray it again. Maybe it's been a while since you've prayed it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us. God, forgive me of my sin. Wash me clean. God, I pray that you would give me a new start as I forgive those who've sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to invite you to pray that prayer in your heart. And if it's the first time that you have ever prayed that prayer and you want to talk to somebody about what it means to follow Jesus, then we would love to talk with you. There's a QR code you can scan on the chair in front of you or the Connect Lounge at the back. Online, message us, DM us. We'd love to connect with you to talk about that prayer and talk about what it means to follow Jesus.
And if it's been a while for you since you've prayed the Lord's Prayer and you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I strongly recommend that you take this prayer with you into this week. When you don't know what to pray, when there are no words, when there's images in the media that you don't know how to explain, that we would be courageous, get on our knees and pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. What is the Christian response to the noise going on at the moment? It's a response of courage and it's a response of worship. We both rise up and we bow down. So God, I pray that you would bless every family, every home, every individual that's represented in this room today and watching online. I pray, Father, for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Go in courage. And remember that the God of heaven is backing you. And gentlemen- Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are truly blessed by what you heard. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au.